Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome to another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. We've got another fantastic interview for you today with a fella named Sweet Leaf Joe. Now, this guy embodies everything that we like to see in cannabis when it comes to compassion, when it comes to altruism, when it comes to trying to get the plant to the people who need it the most. He's been at it for a really, really long time, and we salute him for it. His story is absolutely incredible. It's very, very moving, and we hope that it inspires everybody listening to put a little bit of generosity into our cannabis experience of the world. Isn't that right, Bean? Yeah, absolutely. This story will take you back to the grassroots era of cannabis distribution to the open heart era of cannabis to the time when people were risking their freedom to provide this plant to the people in need. I know we were both incredibly inspired by this story and in particular how Sweetleaf Joe took some of his own as he describes them mental health challenges and found that helping people And bringing this plant to the world not only helped those people that he reached out to, but really helped himself. And a little note on the organization that he founded. The Sweet Leaf Collective began in San Francisco in 1996. That's the year that California voters passed Prop 215, the first statewide medical cannabis law. In the beginning... Sweetleaf provided access to cannabis for five AIDS patients, and as you're about to hear from the organization's founder, they grew from there into a statewide movement providing millions of dollars worth of free cannabis to patients in need throughout California. You can also hear how you can get involved and either help Sweetleaf directly or Extend this movement to where you live by stepping up and fulfilling some of this need, which obviously continues to this day. And, you know, as we enter the era of capitalistic cannabis, we really hope that there's people, entrepreneurs, consumers out there that will consider this cause because it's an incredibly important part of our culture around this plant. So Sweetleaf Joe got started at an organization called Food Not Bombs. So that's an all-volunteer movement that recovers food that would otherwise be discarded and shares free vegan and vegetarian meals with the hungry in over a 1,000 cities in 65 countries in protest to war, poverty, and destruction of the environment. They're dedicated to taking nonviolent direct action, and their movement has no headquarters or positions of leadership, and they use the process of consensus to make all their decisions, which is just a really beautiful way to run an organization, especially with this cause. They also provide food and supplies to the survivors of natural disasters, people participating in occupations, strikes, marches, and other protests. We're going to see how he went from an organization, Food Not Bombs, that took this surplus in the food supply and redirected it to the people in need, took that principle, applied it to cannabis, and has had such a huge positive effect on so many people. And just got to point out, hate to tell a small percentage of you, but if you love weed and you like it being legal and you like not getting arrested for it, You owe your allegiance to a bunch of anarchistic, direct action, overthrow the system type people like our guest today, Sweetleaf Joe. Yes, absolutely. 
And also for this episode, we'd like to welcome a brand new sponsor for Great Moments in Weed History. Shout out to Lifted Made. Stay tuned after the theme song to find out how you can get high in any state with their hemp-derived novel cannabinoids. Absolutely. Now, before we get into the episode, we do, as always, want to give a huge, 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 as some people would say, shout out (laughs) to all of our friends and supporters and family on Patreon. You can join us in supporting this podcast directly by going to Great Moments in Weed History Dot com. You can put five on it. You can put as little as $1. For $20 of support, you will get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, mailed directly to where you live. I may or may not slide an eighth of weed in there, uh, not in any legally binding way. And of course, everyone on Patreon can watch video versions of this podcast and check out our current beard lengths where are you at yeah so my beard length is actually pretty low because i went baby face uh not completely on purpose a a week ago or so (laughs) but it's coming back in i'm regaining my visible age but you know these are all just verbal descriptions of a beard you could be looking at uh just by throwing us a buck or two and supporting us on patreon we really appreciate everyone who currently supports us on Patreon. So if you are a patron, thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. You allow us to keep doing this show the way that we want to do it. And, uh, you know, if you're considering it, please go check us out, greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and check out all the cool bonuses you can get for being a patron. Alrighty, so I've got a nice pipe packed up right here. Bean, what are you smoking on over there? Oh, I am about to take a, a another test drive of our new sponsor. This is the Lifted Made Herb Live Resin Pen. If you're a Patreon supporter, you're going to watch me take this puff. If you're not, maybe sign up. And you can, of course, as we said, learn more about hemp-derived novel cannabinoids after the theme song. And, of course, if you're not ready to roll, as they say, now is the time when we advise you to hit pause. Chill, roll up a joint, split a blunt, pack a bong, pack a bowl, rub lotions and oils all over your skin and eat as many edibles as you deem wise, whatever it takes to get you where you want to be, to get high on history with the two of us, because one thing we can guarantee you is when you hit unpause and you are ready, we will be ready for another... Great moment in weed history. Sweet Leaf Joe, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, absolutely delighted to have you. So we usually start our interviews the same way. We want to ask you, what was your first encounter with cannabis? How did your relationship to the plant begin? Well, I was in high school and a couple friends, we wanted to try cannabis. None of us had done it. We didn't really know much about it. We were in 
Monterey in California. We just scored some on the street. We didn't know about Schwag. We didn't know about Kind Bud. This is in the early to mid 90s. We happened to get some really good weed just straight <laughs> off. Ah, oh, benefits of living in Monterey, California. Yeah, yeah, we were pretty lucky. That was the first experience, and and it was great. We loved wow. it. I, I had, like, been drinking alcohol. I started drinking alcohol, like, a few months before that. And then once I found cannabis, I was like, forget this alcohol stuff. I know, you know? right? I was like, Yo, kudos to you and your childhood cohort for seeking it out. You know, a lot of people are like, someone just passed me something at a party, but... I had a similar experience where I was like, I've heard of this thing called weed and it sounds awesome and I gotta get my hands on this shit and then there's like a concerted effort. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, some people seek out weed. Some people have weed thrust upon them. I was definitely uh, behind the right bowling alley at the right time for my, <laughs> for my origin story. Um, it seems like it was a, a, a hit right away with you. But when did you sort of realize, wow, this is going to be a big part of my life. This is something that really speaks to me. I was super socially awkward. You know, I have mental health issues, a lot of depression in my own life and in my family's life. So I, I was pretty socially awkward and cannabis really helped me medically from the beginning. I don't know if I really understood that it was helping me medically. All I knew is that it was quieting a part of my brain that was, you know, usually very negative and, you know, very down on myself and making making me really introspective when I would be in groups of people and I'd be like, oh, well, why do these people even want to talk to me? What, what do I even have to say to them? And when I smoked weed, I just like, I fucking lightened up, you know? I was like, ah, oh, dude, I'm like, yeah, what's up? Like, let's have some silly little conversation. And, and it just made, it was a, a social lubricant, but it, it made life less complicated and more easy. And, you know, I think I may have also been medicating for undiagnosed ADHD. It shut that down and sort of let me focus on something. And the thing I was focusing on is like, oh, I'm here right now. There's people around me and, you know, we're just going to have a conversation like kick back. You could live in the moment instead of living in the anxiety. Yeah. Wow. So relatable. That's, you know, something that I think really tracks with 100 percent of the hosts of this podcast. And I'm <laughs> <Yep>. sure with <laughs> a lot of listeners and something that, you know, very rightly, often the conversations around medical cannabis are framed around veterans with PTSD, people going through chemotherapy for cancer, you know, but it can often be these, as you say, even undiagnosed conditions. When did you start to see cannabis as a medicine for other people? And, and, and where did that journey start to lead you? You know, it's kind of a, a combination. So when I became an adult, one of my friends introduced me to activism. And so I was doing Food Not Bombs and, you know, cooking free food and giving it away to houseless individuals. And so I really, again, tying this into mental health stuff, this was giving me some purpose. It was when I'm of service uh, and focusing on helping others, I'm less focused on myself and, you know, bringing myself down. And so 1996, 
Proposition 215 passed in California, and I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I was a food not bomber. And I was like, why don't we do food not bombs for weed? And it was a pretty simple model with that activist group where you're taking surplus from an industry for food not bombs, you know, it's the grocery store industry, taking the surplus and you're redirecting it to those who need it most. And so I thought, you know, there's got to be some surplus in the cannabis industry. Why don't we redirect it to those who need it most? And for me, the people who needed it most were people suffering from, you know, terminal illness. So we were working primarily with HIV and AIDS patients. And, you know, I had just seen cannabis work for myself medically and, as an activist, I wanted to to share that. I wanted to help others who didn't have access and specifically people who didn't have access due to financial constraints that were outside of their control. Had you heard of the activists that came before you with a similar mission like Brownie Mary or like Dennis Barone, who was one of the authors of, of Prop 215? So at that time, I didn't. Um, at, it's kind of funny because I was in activism, but I wasn't in cannabis activism at that time. Honestly, when I heard that there was Proposition 215 and this medical cannabis bill, because it was the first one, nothing had been done like this on that scale before. I didn't think it was going to pass. And then it passed. And then I was like, oh, well, we should do this stuff. I had no idea that people had already been doing it. You know, we got recreational cannabis from medical cannabis, but we got medical cannabis from activists in the 80s giving away free cannabis to terminally ill patients. And like you said, it was Brownie Mary and it was Dennis Perone. And they were giving away free cannabis to AIDS patients in San Francisco in the 80s when there were no medications. There were no pharmaceuticals that were helping HIV and AIDS patients, and cannabis was the only thing that was helping these patients. And I feel lucky, too, because I'm basically, Sweetleaf, we follow in the footsteps of Dennis Perone. Some of our patients, you know, were these same patients working with Dennis in the 90s and in the 80s with cannabis activism and Dennis's first dispensary, you know, the first dispensary in the world that was for medical patients. Just a note for listeners, you know, we have episodes of this podcast about Dennis Perone and about Brownie Mary, also about the organization Wham! That will give you a lot of this back history. And I know for both of us, some of our favorite and most impactful for listeners episodes. So stick with us here, but th there's more uh, in the feed. Joe, what, what was the first concrete step you took to take cannabis from this surplus, as you describe it, and bring it to a person who needed it? It's two parts. So I had to find the surplus, and I also had to find patients. So at that time, in Food Not Bombs, there was a guy who was growing. He was doing an indoor grow, and I, you know, I asked him for some of his surplus. At that time, you know, indoor cannabis was selling for a minimum of $4,000 a pound. It was really expensive back then. And so the surplus that we saw was, you know, a lower quality in smaller amounts. So at the beginning, all we got was leaf. And oh, wow. So essentially tramp, like not even small buds, like, oh, the show buds go to the store, the small not buds even, go to... Mm. Not even trim. It was leaf. 
Oh, boy. And so we had about like five patients. So the way I found the patients is I was involved with another group that was like a like queer performance group from the 70s and 80s. And so their whole community had been impacted by the AIDS epidemic. And they had a bunch of friends who needed free cannabis who were low income and they were HIV positive or full blown AIDS. And so it started out where I was giving about a half an ounce of leaf to these patients monthly. And sometimes we would bake it up into edibles. At that time, Rainbow Grocery in San Francisco, they were like the local co-op in the Mission District, and they donated to us, they gave us free flour and all the supplies we needed to make the cannabis treats, and then we'd make them up and I would bike deliver them around. So we started out doing, you know, bike delivery. It was primarily patients in the Mission District and in the Tenderloin on 6th Street. Low-income people, people living on SSI and general assistance, welfare. You know, people with really not a lot of money. And at that time, cannabis was really expensive. People just couldn't afford it. Prop 215, the first statewide uh, medical cannabis law has passed. It would on paper seem to protect what you're doing, but how did the reality differ from that? I had a pager. The patients would contact me on a pager and I would call them back from a payphone. And the reason being was at this time, the federal government was severely cracking down on medical cannabis. This is the beginning of the industry and the federal government did not want to see this happen. If the feds had caught me, I was facing five to 10 years federal prison term. And I have some friends who were active in that time period who were caught and they were primarily giving away cannabis to patients and they did five years. As a, another example, the federal government was coming down on doctors who were recommending cannabis to their patients and trying to take away their medical licenses. And that court case actually went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court sided in favor of the doctors because it was a First Amendment issue. Ah, that old Supreme Court from back then, huh? <laughs> yeah. So so they actually, you know, that's back when Supreme Court, like, you know, they were, you know... Wasn't just like the fascism panel... Or whatever, yeah. The, the fascism panel and friends. You know, they're still, <laughs> yeah. they're still three of them. Yeah, apparently some of the wives and spouses can just weigh in <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> it was a completely different time. I love where we're at now being able to talk about this, having podcasts about this. I lived in fear for a long time. At that time as well, there were these cannabis consortium meetings. So it was all the dispensaries at the time. We They were called buyer's clubs. You know, we would go into these meetings and we'd be like looking under the tables, you know, because we were pretty sure that it was bugged, that the federal government was listening in. It was that sort of, of level that the feds were doing these crackdowns. People were going to prison. Yeah, it was it was really scary. You know, I was a young, like 20 year old, 21 year old, like activist kid. You know, I had dreadlocks. I had my like torn up pants. I didn't I didn't want to do 10 years prison time. Like yeah. it was it was fucking scary. We had to fight. We were the the other thing. It's great for people. And I really appreciate that y'all know who Brownie Mary and Dennis Perone is, because there's a bunch of people in cannabis media 
who have no idea who the founders of our industry are. You know, some people, like they say, Stephen D'Angelo is the father of legalized cannabis. I'm like, that guy came to California in 2006 or something? Like, uh, he was way after the fact. If you weren't in California in the 90s, it's kind of hard to say you had anything to do with the, the founding of cannabis. So I appreciate you all understand this history because we fought. Brownie Mary was jailed multiple times for giving away free cannabis to dying patients. This industry was started by activists. We fought. We put our freedom on the line. We were facing major, major fed time in prison. And some of us did it. Thank God. Like we talked about earlier, you know, run and tight game. I fucking ran tight game, you know, <laughs> my patients. And, and, it, and it's hard, you know, they I had to have this little bit of disconnect and distance. You know, the patients didn't know where to find me when I'm calling people up who are calling on the pager and they're a new patient. At that time, the feds were doing stuff like that. And they were basically doing entrapment and they'd be like, oh, see, you you got me some cannabis and I'm not actually a patient. I forged all that paperwork. And you're like, oh, my God. So we had to watch our back and we fought and we lived with paranoia. You know, I lived for years with the paranoia that, you know, my my door could get kicked in in the middle of the night and I'm woken up with machine guns in my face and it's the federal government. And so as you as as Sweetleaf and your efforts grew from I believe half a ounce of leaves to uh serving more and more patients how did that word spread and how did you simultaneously keep your game tight as medical started to expand and we started to see more people growing you know the supply went up so the the price started going down. When the price went down, we noticed an increase of quality and quantity in the donations that we were receiving. That side of it, you know, we're starting to get more supply coming in. We're increasing what the patients are getting. Then we can increase our patient load. And we were always word of mouth. We had flyers and it was usually, you know, other friends of the patients. You know, they're going to AIDS support groups. They know other people in their community who have AIDS and HIV and use cannabis and are also broke. And they're like, hey, you, you should call these people. We were super underground. I was working with a politician after 64 passed, and he was an out gay man in San Francisco who represented the Mission District and was HIV positive. And when I met him and told him about who we were and what we were doing and that we'd already been doing it for 20 years, he was like, I've never heard of you. And I was like, yeah, dude. Underground, yeah. Underground, dude. It sounds like obviously you struggled to keep this thing stealthy and, you know, we're risking your life and safety to, to do this all for the patients, right? And I'm wondering, is there like a patient or a story that stands out in your mind, you know, as an exceptional story or an exemplary story of like somebody who benefited from all this shit that you were doing, man. The stories are countless. So many times I had showed up at a patient's house and the patient is in tears. And, you know, through their tears, 
they're telling me that they would have already died if it wasn't for this free cannabis. It's things like that that when I would feel the impact that Sweet Leaf was having in these patients' lives, I just knew we were we were doing the right thing. You know, there were some patients where we'd show up the first time and, you know, we're showing up with like ounces of free weed. And at that point, it was like, you know, a lot more flour and smalls and, you know, come into their apartment and they explain, they're like, I didn't think this was real until you showed up here and pulled that out of your backpack. I didn't think this was possible. They're like, who's going to help me? I'm, you know, broke. I have a terminal illness. Society neglects these type of people. And so for us to do that, we were filling a major need. And so there's one story of a patient who was dying of wasting syndrome. That's one of the the side effects with HIV and AIDS. And the patient can't eat and they turn into a human skeleton. And this patient was on pharmaceuticals for appetite stimulation that were not working. And they cost about $3,000 a month. You know, they were covered with insurance, you know, Medi-Cal and stuff, but it wasn't working. The Western medical pharmaceutical industry did not have an answer for this patient and the patient was dying. They were telling us about how people would stop in the street when they were like walking to the store because they look, he looked like he was going to die and people, you know, he couldn't go to work. He didn't have any energy. And so we brought him his first compassion donation. And a month later, he was telling us he went to his doctor and in 30 days he had put on 30 pounds. And his doctor was like, his doctor was like, I don't know what the fuck you are doing, but keep doing it. (laughs) Keep doing that. Because he was like, the doctor was like, I didn't have any answers for you anymore. You were on your way out. It's things like that that are real stories in the cannabis nonprofit sector. The cannabis nonprofit sector saves lives with free medical cannabis. And we do it every day. And it's super impactful. And these patients need us. They've always needed us. And the demand has not gone away. And we've never been able to, you know, I feel like we only scratch the surface of how many people actually need this medicine and can't afford it. We're always expanding. You know, we often look at activism and efforts like this very rightly as as outwardly helping other people. And I'm wondering if you can also talk about what this brought to you in, in your life. And, you know, perhaps that can inspire other people to to look at that example. And 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 what was a what would a typical day be like for you at this time? You know, Sweetleaf isn't your typical nonprofit. You know, nonprofits generally have a bit of a hierarchy. And the people who are coming for services are seen as lesser than. And the people who run the nonprofits, and this isn't a critique, this is just the way society works. But, you know, they're like, I don't want to say better than, but the people who work, they're like, they work at the nonprofit and they're like, you know, we're the top of the hierarchy. 
Y'all are the ones that were helping out. And so a lot of times with the patients when, you know, they're thanking me, super appreciative for, for what Sweet Leaf has done for them. You know, I turn around and and tell them about how it's a two-way street, how I'm someone who suffers from mental health and I have very bad depression, which you can't, most people can't really tell because I smile a lot. But I suffer from really bad depression. And what the patients do is they give me a, a reason to live. They give me purpose in my life. I am helping them and Sweet Leaf is helping them. They are helping me. Because I don't think I would be here and I don't think I would be as functional as I am today without the support of these patients. And we have a very, you know, non-hierarchical type of system where, you know, I'm getting just as much from them as they are getting from me. And I acknowledge that and, and you know, I'm super thankful and appreciative for that. This is, a, this is an opportunity for me, you know, it's, yeah, mental health is a fucking bitch. It really is, man. And that is absolutely beautiful. I mean, that is that what you just said right there might be like the greatest moment in great moments in weed history history. That is absolutely beautiful because it gets to the heart of why we serve the plant. Right. I think that's the difference. It's it's not what the plant can do for you. It's for what you can do for the plant. And in a lot of ways, like those two things, it, it is symbiosis. Right. Like that's. That's the relationship. This thing feeds us in so many ways and we feed it in so many ways. And so, you know, you're coming out of the activism era. You're coming out of Prop 215, which, you know, allowed for uh, this surplus to, you know, to find its way to your patients. Right. So as the cannabis industry starts to build. Right. So pre 64. But, you know, we're talking about a time when the world starts to see it as an opportunity to cash in, an opportunity to, you know, make big money. How does that change your environment when it comes to your mission? Well, it's been interesting. You know, we do have relationships with larger brands, but what I definitely try to keep a focus on is all the legacy people. And, you know, I also try to point out you know, the legacy equity, how it's two sides of the same coin. Equity people are legacy in urban areas. And legacy people, because you usually hear it about cultivation, they're equity in the rural areas. And basically legacy and equity, it's all of us that were in this industry before it was okay. And we're the ones who paved the way for big business to have this opportunity. So, you know, we definitely keep that focus because it's all these legacy and equity permit holders who before it was Prop 64, they were all the ones supporting Compassion and the cannabis nonprofit sector. It's been helpful with, you know, bigger corporations coming in and starting to work more with the nonprofit sector. But I do feel like we're losing a little bit of our roots. And a lot of the new people coming in have no idea what the roots of our industry are. And a lot of, you know, the suits 
they think that medical was just like a joke so that we could get to recreational. They don't realize that medical cannabis saves lives. But then there's, you know, the flip side too is with things expanding, more supply happening. Again, when the price of the cannabis goes down, it's not good for all the legacy cultivators. But what we see on the nonprofit side of things is we see uh, an increase in product donations. So, and when the increase in product donations happens, we can create more access to compassion. And looking at that increase in access, can you can you give us a sense of of how the organization grew and and any sort of uh, you know way we can quantify how many people are are able to be served or or just track that growth for us uh, from you know half a ounce of leaves. There's a few different things I should probably touch on as well. You know, when 64 happened, they started taxing compassionate cannabis. We had to do a fundraiser to pay the state taxes for the free cannabis that our patients were receiving. It's the only time I've ever heard of philanthropy being taxed. So we had to fight that. We changed California law. The first time a large governmental entity has acknowledged the nonprofit sector of the cannabis industry. Once that happened, you know, we started getting a lot more attention. I hadn't done interviews for the first like 20 years of Sweet Leaf. Our lawyers just, you know, told me to keep my head down. So then all of a sudden, when we're trying to change the law, you know, I'm this becoming this like public figure or whatever that I never thought I would be also being a lobbyist and, you know, trying to to change, you know, regulations and stuff. So we started getting a lot of attention. The California regulatory system currently does not have a, a permit category for nonprofits. That's something else we've been working on with some other cannabis nonprofits and compassion programs. So what that meant is we have, you know, over 300 permitted partners all up and down the permitted supply chain. So now instead of us driving to, you know, Mendocino to Circadian Farms, you know, one of our original donors and picking up a bunch of cannabis, driving it back down to the Bay Area, packaging it up and bike delivering it out to patients. Now we're basically sort of tracking donations down through the whole compassion supply chain with our sister project that we call Team Compassion. It's basically all the same people working on Sweet Leaf, but working within the cannabis supply chain. So we're tracking it. And then we're working with retailers, dispensaries and delivery services that are then getting it out to the patients. So what we've seen is now Sweet Leaf, we're able to have a lot bigger reach because we're in this coordination position now. We're not boots on the ground. We're not like, you know, running up to Mendo and putting all the garbage bags in the in the pickup truck, you know, which we we would use ostrich bags, the turkey bags that are like, you know, trash bag size. And we'd be like quadruple, you know, packing it so there's no smell, you know. And we, we were doing a lot of work on the back end. So now we're getting a, a whole bunch of interest from brands who want to donate. You know, Coda Chocolates last year gave us half a million dollars worth of cannabis chocolate. And so we're getting major donations. And we have become, with 
Sweet Leaf and Team Compassion, we become a compassion distributor. So now we are sourcing free medical cannabis for programs all over the state, over 20 different retailers and programs. What we're trying to do is pull together all these independent operators into a cohesive cannabis nonprofit sector. We want to be the gold standard for the country once federal legalization happens so that this model can be replicated. So now when we look at 2021, our patient network is over 1,000 patients. It's veterans, it's low-income terminally ill patients, it's people of color. There are now POC compassion programs in the Bay Area. You know, it's the LGBTQ community, it's houseless people as well. You know, all these disenfranchised and disempowered communities were helping out with free medical cannabis. So over a thousand patients and veterans, and they were able to access nearly $3 million worth of free medical cannabis. And this year, our goal is $10 million. Wow, that is absolutely incredible, man. And also, yeah. it, it seems like there are, you know, as the climate around the understanding of cannabis has changed, right? There's probably more and more people in those marginalized groups that you're talking about who have never tried cannabis before who are like, okay, maybe this will work for me. Not even necessarily for a diagnosable disease, right? But people who have been living with mental health issues like their whole lives, right? Have you yes. seen growth in that sense? Can you describe that a little bit? Hell yeah. So my dude, Jamal, I helped create a project called Jazz Cabbage. Now, Jamal does a bunch of nonprofit work. He's got his own nonprofit. He works with at-risk youth in Oakland. You know, a lot of kids in East Oakland, and he's trying to, you know, get them off the streets and basically keep them from, from getting into trouble. And so he had this idea with another activist and they were like, you know, what do you think about this definition of compassion? All low income people of color in California qualify for free medical cannabis due to sustained PTSD from systemic injustice, racism, and over-policing. And with that definition, millions of Californians qualify for free medical cannabis. Mm. And so I did a whole bunch of compassion consulting with Jamal to get his project off the ground and have sourced him hundreds of thousands of dollars of free medical cannabis. And he talks about, you know, working with like the elderly African-American community, breaking these stigmas where people are like, oh, wait, this does help me out medically, like, or, you know, the younger generation that, you know, it's like, let's, you know, blunts over 40s. You know, if people are smoking blunts mm -hmm. and they're not drinking beer, stuff is way more chill. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. And this is actually statistically proven in places like Colorado and Washington, the early recreational states. This is uh, this is not just hearsay. Yeah, no, this is this is real shit. There are facts backing these statements up. So with Jamal, yeah, he's he's dealing with that, too, where, you know, we're basically doing these huge public awareness campaigns. People deserve free weed like there is PTSD in our low income neighborhoods from just having to deal with being in a low-income neighborhood. You know, I talked to 
to one lady who was talking about growing up and, you know, having drive-bys. And when I told her about this new POC compassion program, she was like, wait, she's like, she didn't realize that she had PTSD from growing up in the neighborhood that she grew up in. And then she was like, oh shit, I have PTSD. And then she was like, oh, maybe I've been smoking weed for my PTSD. And so it's like, you know, people really going from, you know, this 90s, 2000 sort of mentality where you're like, you know, you're on the block, you're on the corner and you're smoking a blunt, but you're like looking over your shoulder for the cops. And you're like, wait, I'm breaking the law. And really educating people where it's like, actually, you're smoking that blunt to help yourself medically just because you are looking over your shoulder for the cops. Because you have that in your head that you need to look over your shoulder for the cops, you need to smoke weed and that weed should be free if you can't afford it. You know, another important point in this discussion, we've been talking about sort of this 30-year journey for cannabis, medical cannabis, and then ultimately recreational or adult-use cannabis in California. But, you know, our podcast reaches the rest of the country. The, our podcast reaches all, all over the world. Uh, don't want to oversell it, but, you know, got a nice listenership in Nigeria and Japan. Shout out to our friends there. Um, everyone is at a different point in this journey. Obviously, you can go to uh, places in the United States where it's absolute prohibition. You can go to places in the United States where there's a medical program um, that is almost the equivalent of uh, the early 2000s in California. You can go to places that are just now, New York, New Jersey, implementing recreational cannabis. And so I think if you can share your experience for somebody who is in uh, I want to say essentially the developing world of legalization. Um, how can they contribute to this conversation locally? How can they um, and 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 understanding that not everybody can or even should be the people taking these risks. That is a specific choice for people to make themselves. The idea that everyone is morally obligated to risk. Prison is 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 not one that that you know people should take to heart. But what can you say to people in those places who are afraid? Okay, legalization is clearly coming where I live, and I don't want it to be this corporate shit show. And I want us to make sure that we adhere to these principles and that we put first the people in the greatest need for cannabis. We can really learn a lot from the example from California. The way that we got it here was through a defense called medical necessity. And so if you're going to break the law, you are using it for a terminal condition. That is medical necessity. You know, and we have all these research papers now that show the medical efficacy of cannabis. So that's one way to sort of get the inroads. The things that I did, I wouldn't necessarily recommend for just anyone. You really want to know what you're doing and understand that it's for the long haul and that it's not easy. But this is what needs to happen. Like some people do need to push the envelope 
to get the envelope to move. And the best way to do that is, you know, working with low income people who are terminally ill and getting them free cannabis. The other thing for people to do is, you know, start organizing, start working with local politicians and then state politicians to get medical cannabis recognized. How we did it in California is Brownie Mary and Dennis Perone originally got a medical cannabis law on the books of the city and county of San Francisco in 1991. And then Valerie Corral and Wham, some other mentors and awesome people, shout out to Val, you know, they did a similar thing in Santa Cruz. And so before we had medical for the whole state, there were a couple counties that had medical cannabis just in that county. But then the issue you face is kind of like what we had with the state and the feds. So if a county is medical, the state can still come in and try to mess with them. But we we change public perception a little bit at a time. And so doing it on a local level, then doing it on a state level, you know, and having the focus be on the medical benefits, you know, working with doctors, work with doctors that understand cannabinoid therapy. There's something called the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. And that is a, a, an association of doctors that work with cannabis and work with each other. So we're working on getting California sorted out right now. Then we're going to get the country sorted out. Then Sweetleaf, we already have plans to start going international. We're working with people in Ukraine right now. We are in the process of getting a million doses of CBD out to Ukrainian refugees. We're working with people in Colombia right now with the first cannabis nonprofit down there to start compassion programs down there. And what we're sort of looking at is combining doctors with medical research that that research then gets translated into the la the local language and then working with lawyers so that they can communicate with the politicians. And so having this team up of research patients and doctors working with a team of lawyers to change the idea for the politicians. Because at this point, too, there's so much of the world that is doing this. You know, I think Thailand just changed their laws as well. You know, it's happening across the world in a bunch of different continents. So the push, the lift is a lot easier than it was 25 years ago. You know, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. What a lot of activists have done over the decades has paved the way to make the lift easier. If you're in another country, you can point out other countries that are probably on the same continent as you that are doing these things. That, you know, hard drug use is going down. You know, medical patients are finding benefits that they don't find with pharmaceuticals. Like, I mean, the list goes on and on. And you just need to be articulate about it when working with the government. You know, we can't be too activist-y and like, you know, be shouting people down. We're trying to educate these people. These people have just been miseducated and we're trying to get them up to the current standards, you know? And I think the other side of this is these conversations are already happening, but in too many cases, they're being led by the industry and often by the most capitalistic and even avaricious 
segment of the industry. They can devote resources to lobbying and to pushing for the laws that they want because they're going to get it on the back end. But they're not, you know, I don't, we're not vilifying the industry at large. And there's many people in the industry who are here for the right reasons. They're including people who donate to Sweet Leaf or who simply have good intentions. But the lobbying that is going on, the conversations that are happening with politicians are all too often being led by industry. And you, whoever is listening to this, you have a strong voice where you live. The The politicians that you are able to vote for and who, in essence, work for you have to listen to you. They don't have to do what you say, unfortunately, but they will listen to you. And by being a voice for the marginalized, being a voice for patients, being a voice for the idea that cannabis is a human right, particularly when we understand the medicinal benefits of it, you can help to counteract that move towards hyper-capitalization of this plant and bring it back to a discussion of human need and human rights. And, you know, just to piggyback on that, you know, these corporations, they have the money, but we have the numbers. It's really about organizing. This is a people's movement. This is about health equity. This isn't about making billionaires more billions. You know, I just had a call yesterday with two cannabis lawyers in Poland because that's where we're looking at, you know, sending the CBD to get it over to the Ukrainian refugees. And they have two cannabis companies involved over there. And I believe it's Cure Leaf and Canopy. And no one else is involved. And there's like, you know, one other business that might be getting over in over there. And it's another one of these like, you know, hundred hundreds of millions of dollars in valuation, giant corporation. And they're not there to help the patients. You know, when these corporations help out the nonprofit sector, it's an afterthought. And so really, like, this is a people's movement. Everybody organize, get together. We are stronger together. And the politicians need to hear our voice, our collective voice. So, Sweetly Joe, you've done some incredible things that have helped so many people. And, you know, a lot of it is thanks to your chutzpah and your, you know, organizational skill in getting this done. So for anybody who's listening to this, wherever they might be in the world, who's thinking to themselves, this is a good idea. Like, I want to deliver cannabis to the people who need it most charitably where I live how do you get that started? What's the first step? How do you get it going? Well, you know, just start looking for patients. You know, you can put up flyers. Um, you know, if you're in an area where it's not yet legal, use a burner phone. You know, run tight game. There is security stuff that you can do. You know, don't meet people at your house. You know, meet in public places or go to other people's homes. That's why we did bike delivery back in the day. You know, there's there's a bunch of little things that you can do. You know, find somebody who's growing some weed, you know, who wants to like, you know, give some of their smalls or, you know, start with leaf like we did. You know, you can bake leaf in the oven 
at 225 degrees for 20 minutes. It decarboxylates it and it activates it. And then you can just eat it raw. You don't have to cook it into butter. So there's ways you can get the medical cannabis out there. It might not be like the best, but it's something. And something is better than nothing. Ah, this is an old adage of this podcast. <laughs> you can, you know, start with five patients. Start with two patients. We have a lot of listeners in the California cannabis community. How can they help your efforts? How, if they want to donate product, if they want to uh, volunteer or in any way amplify what you're already doing, what's the best way to start that process? People can visit our website, sweetleafcollective.org. We're always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for monetary contributions. We recently got our 501c3 status. So anybody out there that wants to donate financially, you can get a tax write-off. We're looking for sponsorships with big brands. Basically, every dollar that we're able to raise means a patient can access one free gram of medical cannabis. We also sell lighters and rolling papers around the state. So it's Sweetleaf branded products. And, you know, you can find them in your local dispensary. If they're not there, tell your dispensary to hit us up. If people want to reach out to me, super easy, sweetleafjoe at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, sweetleafpatients on Instagram. And what's your and current burner phone number? Just kidding, just kidding. Dude, I love it. I don't, I don't have one anymore. Of oh, my God, not. how it's far we've come. I mean, True. back in the day, I mean, you know, there's still statute of limitations. So I, there's some things that I don't talk about. Of course. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I had 10 phones. <laughs> <laughs> the only drug dealer who's giving away his product for free has <laughs> got the yeah. 10 burner phones lined up. I absolutely love that. Well, it's a really beautiful story, your story, Sweet Leaf Joe. And, you know, thank you so much for everything you've done, not just for your patients, but also for the community because, you know, as this becomes more of a business and as it gets legalized and as we inevitably charge towards federal legalization and the entry of multinationals into our industry, you remain the beating heart. You know what I mean? It's people like you who keep compassion in cannabis and that is so incredibly important. We can never, ever forget that. So you listening, if you're hearing about Sweetleaf for the first time, Check them out. Hit up Sweet Leaf Joe. If you're a cannabis brand of any size in California, consider, do we have surplus? Is there a way that we can help? Right now, people need help more than ever. People are being traumatized by the condition of things, and they need cannabis more than ever. Sweet Leaf Joe, thank you so much for being on Great Moments in Weed History, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Bienenstock, a.k.a. Bean. 
Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout. 